Word of God is found in 2 Peter 2, the last three verses of the chapter. These words. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is returned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. In general, beloved, the meaning of this passage, I think, is quite clear. must remember that the apostle is still speaking in this section of the false teachers to warn against them, and he is speaking of their followers, warning us not to be such followers. We may notice that throughout he speaks of these false teachers as arising from within the church and trying within the church to spread their heresies, what he calls their heresies of damnation in the first part of the chapter. That underlies our text for this afternoon and the whole context. Those, those teachers that arise from within the church and teach heresy are the greatest danger for the church. They're the enemy within the gate who have a cloak of religion and religiousness. The apostle has, in the preceding, compared them with that most abominable hypocrite of the Old Testament as far as their motive is concerned. Compared them with Balaam as loving the wages of unrighteousness and being, in that regard, spiritually mad. In the section beginning with verse 17, he speaks of their teaching, their preaching, and of the uh, emptiness of that preaching. They are wells without water. That is, in their preaching, they don't bring the water of life. They are like a well, and a weary traveler comes to the well. When he sees it, he expects to get a refreshing drink of water, 
and he discovers that the well is without water. They're like storm clouds that bring no rain, quickly blown away. They speak words of vanity, and they allure through the lusts of the flesh, and they promise liberty while they themselves are the servants of corruption. You see, the apostle has in mind here particularly those false teachers who are called libertines, who really taught that it doesn't make any difference how the child of God lives and walks in the midst of the world. He's been saved by grace, and so he can simply live as he pleases. He's like those of whom the Apostle Paul writes, who teach, let us sin, that grace may abound. But in our text, he speaks of the end of these false teachers, and he characterizes their end as being worse than their beginning. And he finally applies the well-known proverb that you find in verse 22. The, the main thought, therefore, is quite scriptural. You find that more than once in scripture. The Lord speaks, for example, of the fact that it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon and for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the cities of Galilee who heard his preaching and who did not repent. And in Luke 12, verse 47 and 48, he speaks of those who shall be beaten with double stripes. You have the same idea here. Their latter end is worse than the beginning. But there's some details and questions here to which we must give our attention. Does the apostle here actually teach a falling away of the saints? That's one question. And related to it is the question, why is their latter end worse than their beginning? So I call your attention to the text under the theme, the worse end, the worse end. And let's ask and answer three questions. The worse end of whom? The worse end what? And the worse end of what significance? A text speaks of the latter end or the last estate, the last position of these men, and of the beginning or the first things, the first estate of these men. And it speaks of certain events which take place between that beginning and that end, and it enumerates those events. So we have to understand, first of all, these men 
and their characteristics and the spiritual process through which they pass. There's first of all their original unconverted state. The text speaks of their beginning or their first things from which they escaped. In that first estate, negatively, they had no knowledge of Jesus Christ. They did not know the way of righteousness. They had no knowledge of what is called in our text the Holy Commandment. They were heathen. Positively, they are, in the first place, rational, moral creatures, thinking and willing creatures, who, from the things that are made, as Romans 1 puts it, know the power and divinity of God. Besides that, they were able, as the Apostle Paul again emphasizes in Romans 1 and 2, they were able to distinguish between right and wrong. They had the work of the law, not the law, but the work of the law, that is, the work of distinguishing between right and wrong written in their heart. But they were corrupt, totally depraved. They were entangled, to use the language of the text, entangled in the corruptions of this world, the corruptions of the world of sin and lust. Apostle uses a word here that's rendered by uh, pollutions in our English version, a word which means in its root to color, to stain. So by contact with the world of sin, they were entangled in it, and their nature was stained by it, defiled, corrupted by its defilements. That was their first position. That was literally and historically the case with those to whom the Apostle Peter is writing here. When the gospel came, they were called directly out of rank heathendom. But that's principally true of us all by nature. It was true also of the false teachers then, but also now. By nature and by birth, we are totally depraved, darkened, perversed, entangled in the defilements of this world. That's our natural position of all of us and of the false teachers too. In the second place, our text speaks of the fact that they had escaped these defilements. For if after they have escaped 
the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior and so on. <coughs> they escape the pollutions of the world and they escape those pollutions, notice, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Through him they came to know the way of righteousness. So for a time, and in a certain sense, they were Christians. They were apparently, I don't say really, but they were apparently converted and sanctified. They had the knowledge of Christ. Notice that our text even suggests that that knowledge of Christ in the case of these false teachers was rather thorough. Our text uses four names of the Savior, undoubtedly to emphasize their knowledge and its completeness. He's Lord, ruler of their existence. He's Savior from sin, from the pollutions of the world. And he's Jesus Christ, the ordained Savior of his people. Notice that the text even says that they knew him. They knew him. They had the knowledge of him. That's rather strong language. It doesn't merely say that they knew about him, but they had knowledge of him. Knowledge of experience is the term that's used here. And they knew the way of righteousness. Again, the text is speaking of a very real knowledge. And the way of righteousness is the way that is, of course, characterized entirely by righteousness. The righteousness of God revealed in Christ. Not merely did they know what righteousness is. They did not merely know the precepts of the law. They knew that too. But the righteousness of God in Christ. They knew the way to become righteous. They knew the way to perfect righteousness before God. The way that is of Christ's righteousness being imputed to them. They knew that this way meant that the perfect righteousness of Christ also was applied to them spiritually so that by its principle they could walk before God in a manner that was pleasing to Him. They knew all that. And so they were escaped from the pollutions of the world. Right there, you have the first application of that proverb. They were like the dog. They were like the dog that vomited. At first, they first had taken in the pollutions of the world, and then they vomited them out. They rejected them. Or like the washed sow they were. They first had 
wallowed in the world's filth, just like a sow wallows in the mire. But now they were cleansed, washed. You could not see anymore that that sow had been a dirty pig. The next step that our text describes is that they be they were re-entangled in the pollutions of the world and overcome. That's that's the third stage at which they are described, where they finally arrive. They are described two ways here. They are again entangled and overcome by the pollutions of the world. That's one thing. And they turn from, literally, the word there is, they, they turn back out of the holy commandment that is, was delivered unto them. You see, the reference here is especially to the libertines that are mentioned in verse 19. They promise them liberty, but they themselves are the servants of corruption. There have been such libertines many times in the history of the church. They were there in the apostles' day. Men who taught that because the child of God was saved by grace, he could simply live as he pleased. He was saved anyway. He was delivered from sin. So he could simply go out and enjoy all the corruptions of this world. There were such men at the time when John Calvin was in Geneva, too. They were the men whom Calvin vowed to keep from the Lord's Supper, even at the expense of his life. They threatened to kill him. For a time, Calvin had to leave Geneva and go and live in Strasbourg. Because of them, the Libertine Party, they wanted to revel in all the corruptions of this present world and still call themselves Christians. And these false teachers tried to teach God's people that that was all right. That's a rather easy Christianity, you know. You saved. You're freed from the danger of hellfire. You have the assurance of heaven, and you can go out and live as you please. Doesn't make any difference how you sin. There's a good deal of that around in the world today, too. Those are the men who are described here in our text, and it speaks of them as being again entangled the same old pollutions from which they had been set free supposedly attract them and they become actually involved in them all over again 
They succumb to them. They're overcome. Mind you, the text is not talking about someone who temporarily lapses, who temporarily falls into sin, but they are overcome. The old pollutions have the victory. These people are completely subject. They're in bondage so that their whole existence is enslaved and their whole life is enslaved to sin once again. The other side of that is that they turn from the Holy Commandment. The Holy Commandment is another word in general for the gospel here. It's called a commandment, not because the gospel is another law, not because the way of salvation is uh, the way of another law, but because in the gospel the will of God concerning the life and walk of his people is revealed in Christ. And it's called holy. Holy because it's entirely separated from the world. Holy because it could not be known and could not be received in any other way than through the gospel. It couldn't be known by natural light. And it's called holy because it is entirely consecrated to God, entirely separated from sin. And it had been delivered unto them through the gospel preached. And they had known it. They became acquainted with it. They were even teachers of it at one time. And they turned their back on it. They had been in it. They still know it. They still understand it. But they must have nothing of it anymore. And no more willing to walk in it. They refuse to walk in it. They refuse to acknowledge it. They refuse to teach it. There you have the second application of that proverb in verse 22. They're like a dog that returns to his own vomit. That's a very repulsive picture. A dog returning to his own vomit. But the apostle says that's what these false teachers, these libertines do. They had vomited out their corruption. And now they're returned to it to take it in once more. Or they're like a washed sow that becomes filthy and besmeared with mire once more as it wallows and delights in the mud. So they delight in the pollutions of this world. Well, you expect it of a sow. That's the nature of a sow. A sow has to have mire to live in, to 
wallow in. That's natural. And you expect that if you wash a sow and then set, set her free again, she'll go right back to the mire. But these are moral, rational creatures. They claim, that was their claim once upon a time, they claimed that they had been washed, washed in the blood of Christ, washed from the pollutions of the world. And now they go right back to their wallowing in the mire of the corruptions of this present world. As I said in the introduction to my sermon, that raises a question. Is there a falling away of the saints? Is that really possible? Could you or I do the same thing that these men did, perhaps? Must we live in doubt on that score all our lives? Maybe we'll do the same thing. If not, what does the apostle mean here? In answer to that question, it has to be emphasized, on the one hand, that there certainly is no falling away of the saints. It's contrary to all of Scripture. None of Christ's sheep can ever perish. That's what the Lord Jesus emphasizes in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's impossible. In the second place, that's not the comparison here in the text. The comparison is not between faithful and unfaithful Christians, but the comparison is between two kinds of wicked. Two kinds of wicked. These men never were regenerated. They never were really sanctified. remember that. At the same time, remember, it's possible to come very, very, very close to the gospel without really being touched by it in the heart. It's possible for a man to be affected by the gospel in his mind, in his will, in his emotions, but not in the heart. 
possible that a man is affected that way without ever tasting the gospel spiritually. It's possible in a natural psychological sense to be enlightened. The apostle who wrote to the Hebrews in chapter 6 speaks of that. There's some very strong expressions there in the sixth chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. He speaks of those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God the powers of the world to come. And they fall away. They fall away. They come so close to the gospel, so close to the kingdom, that for a time, you cannot even distinguish between the genuine and the counterfeit. I knew a man like, I've, I've known more than one man like that in my years of experience. But I knew a man like that. He was a doctor very elderly man when I knew him. And my father had known him for a good many years. He had started out in his young life with the goal of being a medical missionary. And I don't know if that was the first mistake he made, but he began by attending medical school. I think it was at the University of Michigan in the States. And he became a good doctor. A ra rather famous doctor, in fact. He was one of the men who experimented early with X-ray when they didn't even know how dangerous it could be yet. He had X-ray burns on his hands because of his experiments. But while he was at medical school, a change came over him. He became an unbeliever with his own father excommunicating him from the church because of his impenitent unbelief. But the man knew he knew. He had a tremendous knowledge of theology. He had more knowledge of Reformed theology than many theologians he could talk about. Even in later years, he could still talk about it. He, was, he had been naturally 
psychologically enlightened. He had never tasted the power of God's grace in the spiritual sense of the word. That should warn us. That should warn us. Not to make us doubt. Not to make us be fearful whether we may fall away, but it should warn us to be filled with the fear of the Lord. And remember, the fear of the Lord, and that's what these libertines did not want to acknowledge, the fear of the Lord is indeed a fear to sin. The fear of the Lord means that we are afraid of sin. It's important that we understand that. And so you have the end of these false teachers. In verse 20 we're told that the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. And in verse 21, it had been better for them not to have known than after they have known to turn from the holy commandment. That's their condemnation, their judgment. We think of that Immediately, of course, their final judgment is worse than if they had never been near the gospel. That's emphasized in verse 21. But the strong emphasis, in the words of our text, beloved, is on the moral, spiritual picture of these men in this present time from a spiritual moral point of view their last position is much worse than their former that's practically true too they plunge into the lust of the flesh more wantonly more deeply than ever. That's actually the case. I've seen that in my ministry. I know of a man who at one time was an elder in my session in South Hollow back home. And he was a good elder. To all appearances. He was a very soundly reformed man. He was a man who was rather capable. A man who could speak well. A man who could deal well with the people in the congregation. And all of a sudden. He turned away. Turned away from the church 
turned away from his wife, from his family, became involved with another woman, and he went deeper and deeper and deeper into sin, and finally, you could not even reach him anymore. You couldn't talk to him. Didn't want to listen. They plunge into the lust of the flesh more wantonly and more deeply than those who have never known and never heard the gospel. And their end is a worse end. Not, of course, because not all men are totally depraved. They all are. And they all go to destruction. There's no essential difference in that regard between one sinner and another outside of Christ. They're all damned. But our text points to a relative difference. But a very real relative difference. And it consists Precisely in what I mentioned a moment ago. They plunge more deeply into sin than ever before. And they are hardened. Remember the apostle to the Hebrews says. It's impossible to turn such men. Not of course because it's not possible for God to convert them. But because that's not God's way of dealing with men of letting them be saved and then lost and then saved again. Not only that, but their sin stands more clearly revealed in its sinfulness. The dog returns to his vomit. The sow returns to her wallowing in the mire. You see? You can wash a sow, make her perfectly clean, and she simply returns. That emphasizes all the more that it's the nature of a sow to seek the mire. They plainly reveal that they love their corruptions and it's impossible to renew them to repentance. What's the significance of that? The apostle writes here to the church to warn them against these false teachers. And here he tells us, look where they end. Look where they end. Beware of them. Don't go after them. Don't tolerate them. In the second place, for us personally, remember, it's very, really possible for a man to do this. And therefore, be not high-minded. 
Don't be proud in your own conceits, but fear and be humble. Besides, beloved, remember what the apostle writes here is principally true of all false teaching. Must never, never, never take a single step in the direction of the lie. No matter how insignificant and small that step may be, apparently. You know, you stand in a railway station. All the trains stand next to each other, and as they leave the station, the tracks are all very close to one another. One train heads out of Melbourne for Adelaide, and another for the West Coast, and another up towards Sydney and Brisbane. They end up far apart from one another. It may seem at first that there's only a small and insignificant difference as far as the truth, as far as doctrine is concerned. But in the course of time, that small and insignificant difference becomes a big one, a tremendous one. Why? Because the seed of the lie is contained in it. And one step demands the next step. There's no standing still. And because historically this very thing takes place. If it doesn't take place in the individual that he steps farther and farther and farther away. It takes place in the course of generations. My old professor Opoff when I was in seminary, used to tell us as students, remember, remember, boys, if you take a step, you take that step not only for yourself, but for your children and for your grandchildren and for your great-grandchildren. the course of generations every move you make bears its fruit whether for the truth or against the truth and therefore beloved be not like these false teachers these libertines go not after them but seek the truth with all your heart Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, apply thy word, we pray, unto our hearts, that we may understand it and that we may heed it, that we may love thy word and that we may seek the truth with all our heart and walk in it as 
children of the light in the midst of the world that is in darkness. Dismiss us now with thy benediction. Go with us in the week that lies ahead, and keep us in thy care and in thy fear, and we shall give thee the praise now and in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.